I'd like to invite you to turn to page 974 in your Sanctuary Bible or in your own Bible, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 uh, through 20, Matthew 18. A little word of introduction about uh, our worship this morning, our, our uh, teaching, is uh, we're in a series about our compass for community, or sometimes it's known as a behavioral covenant. It's a, a set of agreements that we make with each other about how we're going to do life together when we don't agree or we don't get along. Very practical stuff that we've been doing in our church. And actually, we find reflected in Scripture that the Scriptures, while often dwelling on sort of the theological realms of Christ and what his life meant and even some of the parables and how they're kind of mysterious at times and it takes a little bit of work to decipher what they mean. At other times, the Bible is very practical about what life looks like together. And uh, this reading that we have for today is one of those things. And, and the compass for community that we're going through, today's sort of bullet point is on a sheet that you have in your bulletin on a pink piece of paper. And uh, there's a square around it, and it's we seek to communicate clearly, completely, and directly with each other. And that's just a, one of those really important things that actually is not just good advice in the church, is it? It's just good ad- advice in life. But in the church, we find that there's actually some really good reasons for it that have to do with community and growing community. So I'd like to introduce our reading for today, though. This is Matthew chapter 18. And um, Matthew 18 is one of those sort of semi-fun chapters of Matthew where there's a little bit of irony, there's a little bit of humor in it because it starts with the disciples coming to Jesus and asking him who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven among them. And uh, we're already 17 chapters into Matthew, and it's clear that the disciples have digested practically nothing of what Jesus has said, which kind of leads to my kind of sense that these Gospels obviously weren't written until Jesus ascended. They probably weren't written, they certainly weren't written until after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit helped them to write them. Because these disciples, as great as they were and as loyal as they were to Jesus, going around with him for 17 chapters of Matthew, and they still didn't get it. They just had no clue. So their question was, how, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They were really thinking in earthly terms. How do I get to be the top disciple? How do I, I mean, it was probably clear for, to them that Peter was probably near the top, but I'm sure there were a few of them biting at his ankles going, well, maybe we can, maybe we can knock Peter down a few notches and I can take his place. And um, so Jesus Jesus' answer to him is kind of similar to what we looked at last week. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the humble person, is the one who becomes the servant of the others. That's this upside down or what we call inverted kingdom of heaven. The last will be first. The first will be last. The greatest among you is the one who serves the other. And then Jesus goes and, and does that by serving his disciples at the Last Supper, by washing his feet, and then ultimately by serving the world by going to the cross and dying for the world's sins in an act of total humiliation. So our reading today is actually in, probably in this context of humility. How do we have good community with each other? One of the founding, sort of foundational blocks of that is humility. Humility is how we encounter each other when we're in a Christian community that works. Now, there's some practical, this is super practical advice in verses 15 through 20 about what to do when there's a problem between two people in the church. And I think 
when I was younger, I kind of got confused by this because I, I somehow had this illusion in my mind that, well, if people are in the church together and they have the same faith and they have the same Lord and Savior, they could never possibly disagree about anything. It just seemed unlikely. It just seemed impossible. How could they disagree? They have the same Lord. They have the same Bible. They have the same beliefs. Um, how could they fight with each other? How could they disagree with each other? How could they possibly sin against each other, right? The interesting, but the, what we find is being in faith with each other does not automatically make our relationships with each other have less friction. And the more I've read the Bible, the more I've learned that actually the opposite is true. The more of a disciple you are, the more committed you are to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the more friction you will have with this world and possibly with other Christians. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, I have come to set fire on the earth and how I wish it was already burning. I have come to set mothers against daughters, fathers and brothers against brothers, mothers-in-laws against daughters-in-laws, which was very easy to understand that one. But the other ones were tough, right? Jesus is saying, I came into this world to drive a wedge between people. Which doesn't sound like that sweet little baby Jesus sitting in the manger, you know, laying his head on a pile of hay. No crying he makes. It doesn't really line up, but that's the reality. Discipleship, being submitted to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is going to lead you to places where others cannot go because in their, that's not where they are in their stage of life and their stage of faith. It's going to make you go and do things like, I mean, I can imagine. Think of all the foreign missionaries that have gone out into the, into the mission field and they went to their parents one day and said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set aside all my college career degree that you spent $100,000 on and I'm going to uh, not get married to the people you think I should get married to and I'm not going to have the career you think I should have and I'm going to go out into this world and be completely poor for the sake of the gospel. And I hopefully... Any parent, any Christian parent who hears that would go, praise the Lord, that's wonderful. But my guess is that a fair number of parents would go, what have we done wrong? What have we done wrong? Our child became a missionary. Now, I know some of you have missionary kids in this church, and I hope, I hope you have the feeling that, well, you did something right, and you did. But following the call leads to greater friction between parents and children, between people and people. And so all the more reason for us to have a way of dealing with this friction. This friction will come if we're faithful. If you have a church that has no friction, it has no relationship, it has no mission, it has no urgency, it's doing nothing and it's not taking any risks. But if you have a church that's taking risks, that's submitting to the Spirit, that's following the Savior, some of the stuff is going to flare up. That's inevitable. What Jesus is saying is, here's what to do when it does flare up. And so let's go into our reading right now. This is super concrete advice about what happens when two people in the church don't get along. So our reading, page 974, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's quoting from Deuteronomy there. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we have a, just a simple, short, three, four verses blueprint of what to do if there's somebody in the community that you're having a problem with. And the way it's put here is that your brother has sinned against you, has done something wrong against you. It could be your brother, it could be your sister. Um, and so here's, here's the um, sort of prescription that Jesus has. He says, go and show him his fault. Now, that phrase there is actually probably more like go and reprove him or rebuke him, but that's kind of a strong word. The Greek word there is elegson, which is you, to demonstrate that a fault has occurred with adequate proof implied. In other words, it's you point out something that has happened that you can objectively point to something else that shows that you're right. It's not just a rumor. It's not just your impression. It's not just how you feel, but something tangible that has happened that you can point to. And so um, it's, it's, it's not an opinion or a suspicion. I lost my place in my, my notes, but I found it here again. And one thing that I found is that it's very hard to kind of guess at people's motives. Even the Apostle Paul says this. You can't really guess what people's motives are. You can really only look at their behavior. Uh, and you leave it there. So you look at the behavior. You can point to the behavior. You can't point at a motive. A motive is deep inside somebody. You can't really point to it. But you can point at their behavior uh, as a, if you've seen it, other people have seen it. Now, somebody may have bad motives that they've confessed openly and said, please help me, I have these bad motives, and some of this behavior may come out of my bad motives. Then that's them giving you permission to kind of say, well, let's, let's take a step back into where you are and, and deal with where you are in that situation. But you still confront behaviors. And this is what Jesus says. Is all, you, all you have to do is you escalate your engagement with that person and the consequences of of the outcome of it also escalate. So your brother sins, you go with him, just the two of you, one person to one person. Direct communication between two people. This is what Jesus has in mind. Now, that's really the best way. And what, there's some good news in here. If he listens to you, if you, if you are able to demonstrate with sort of adequate proof that a wrong has occurred, Great, this is good news. And it's, it's almost like a, like a flow chart, you know? And it has, ha, does he agree with you? Yes. Well, then it stops here. You've won your brother over and this whole process is over. And, and hopefully after this, there's a deeper relationship too. On the other hand, this would be the no, like the, di the diamond, you know, and the no would go down. No, he didn't listen to you. Then you bring two or three more people, one or two more people along and flesh it out some more. What else have they seen? You know, is it just one person's view against one person's view? Now we have three or four people involved. 
What are they coming up with together? And there's this sort of group wisdom that starts getting employed. And this, the idea is that it's based on the fact that we have a community that observes things together, that works together on these things. So there's this micro-community of three or four people, and if they can't come to any conclusion or this person just won't listen to them, then you bring it to the church. You bring it in front of the whole church and you know, in this case, it would be in front of about 30 or 40 people right now in this room. It could happen in a church service, potentially. It could happen at a meeting that the church holds. Uh, I can just imagine what it's like at a mega church. You know, you get a thousand people watching you right in that moment. Well, um, and if that person then even refuses to listen to the sort of corporate wisdom of this entire church, then for the good of that person, and for the good of the community, too, that person is sent out of the community. That's what happens. They're sent out of the community. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, although more in the context of somebody who's in wanton sin in the community. But that that person is sent out of the body, not permitted to be a part of the body again until they've repented and changed their ways. And what's beautiful about that, is as, as harsh as it sounds, is that it's for that person's soul to be saved that it's done. It's not this punitive measure. It's not to kind of get difficult people away from us so we don't have to deal with them. But it's, it's because that person is on this trajectory towards hell. And the church kicking them out is maybe the last thing that will wake them up out of that and bottom them out enough so that they can start sort of getting out of that situation. So it really is for the good of that person who's been excluded from the community. I think we could really do a real disservice to somebody by not following this advice, by permitting them to keep going in community in a destructive way, never really calling them to account, then we would be responsible for their souls, wouldn't we? I don't want to be in that situation. You know, um, there was a time in my life where just sort of reading this would kind of give me the, the, the hair on the back of my neck would stand up because I thought I'd never... If I was ever in a room where that was happening, I would bolt for the door. I would hide under a pew. I would look in a book and go, oh, I can't hear, what, you know, I can't hear what's going on over there. I mean, I, there's a real strong streak in me that part of me is a people pleaser. I just love to make everybody happy. I love it when everybody's happy. That just doesn't want to touch this stuff because it's so awkward. It's so uncomfortable. Um, praise the Lord that that's, really not who I am anymore. And I don't think I can take credit for it. It's just the Lord, I hope. Uh, now I look at situations like this and I go, good. This is an opportunity for a deeper relationship somewhere down the line. We have an open and honest conversation with people. We even get to the level where we might have to ask somebody to leave the church and that does so much for us. That clarifies who we are and what the mission that we are is on. It identifies how much we love an individual person so much that we would go to the trouble to do that for them instead of just hoping it would go away and sit under the rug. Uh, I, don't, I don't say I, I actively look forward to this sort of thing right now. I don't. I, I, I would still love to run out the door. But there's something about it, and I think Jesus was trying to capture this. There's something about it that has a positive outcome on the other end. You win your brother over. The Apostle Paul talks about somebody's soul who is destined for perdition is saved at the last moment because they wake up to the seriousness of what's going on.
So I welcome these things, even if, um, even if they're difficult to do. So I want to put these all together, maybe these three ideas, that healthy community hinges on, and according to Jesus, if we put it in the context of Matthew 18, healthy community hinges on humility. And I think that's probably an important ingredient if you go into any of these confrontations or rebuking type of conversations with another person is to come with all the humility that you can muster and then ask the Spirit for more because the Spirit will provide it. You come with humility and you you come. Humility says, you know, I might be wrong. Maybe I've done something. Maybe I don't haven't figured this out completely. So you go and you, you talk directly and you get to the bottom of things. The other thing a healthy community does is it takes sin seriously and it takes conflict seriously and it deals with them in constructive ways. And then the third thing is that Jesus points out is communication works best when it's direct, when it's between two people. Only when that fails are more people invited into that group. And Jesus, I want to just point out to a few places in the scripture where Jesus is always favoring direct communication with people. Luke 10, 38, Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha. You know this story? It's a beautiful story. Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to everything he has to say. Martha is in the kitchen trying to get things ready, and she's getting very frustrated at her sister. She comes to Jesus, not her sister, and says, tell my sister to help me in the kitchen. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't go, oh, well, thank you, Martha. By the way, Mary, would you go help your sister Martha in the kitchen? He doesn't do that. He refuses to get into that triangle or be triangulated. I'll talk about that later. But he talks to Martha directly. Martha, your sister has chosen what's important in this moment. That's what you need to know. Then another case, Luke 12, 13. Jesus uh, is yelled at from a crowd. A man yells out from a crowd to him, Teacher, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Here's somebody who's an estate planner. He's probably the the executor of his own estate. His brother is refusing to divide up the the land with him. And um, so I guess this guy's frustrated. He's, He's with his own brother. He's trying to enlist Jesus, this sort of traveling rabbi who's some authority, to reiterate the law to his brother that this estate should be split up. And Jesus, ooh, this is like a testy Jesus. This is not Jesus with his head on the pile of straw. He says, man, what does that have to do with you or me? And in that, that context, in that cultural context, that was as polite as you could be to somebody without sort of biting their head off. It was sort of that forced politeness like, sir, you, you know, must go back to your seat and fasten your seatbelt and not congregate at the front of the plane. And, you know, that... uh, Now, Jesus was not a flight attendant, but there was that sort of the little bit of the anger got brandished in that moment when Jesus was enlisted to triangulate between two brothers. He wanted nothing to do with that. I'm not here for that. You have to work that out on your own. I'm not going to be in the middle of this communication between you and your brother. Um... Jesus thinks that every person is accountable for running their own life, for making their own choices. And part of making your own choices is when you communicate directly, choosing to communicate directly with another person and not going through somebody else. I told you I wanted to introduce this idea of triangulation. I've done it before, but maybe you hadn't heard it or you weren't there that Sunday. 
Triangulation is sort of a dynamic in interpersonal relationships. And I, I would describe it as this, is when one person communicates indirectly with another person by enlisting a third party to be part of the flow of information. And so you go, instead of from going from here to here, it goes from here to here to here. And so you see this beautiful, not so beautiful triangle up here above my head, imaginary. Um, my first experience of triangulation was really pretty innocent. It was, it was actually kind of sweet. I was sitting next to my friend Butch at the cafeteria in sixth grade, and uh, a girl came up to Butch and said, Nina told me to tell you that she likes you. So not to me. Nina did not like me, uh, but she liked Butch. And so this was this cute, you know, how this is a sixth grade thing to do. You get to write on a piece of paper and you have a little box. Do you like me back? Yes or no? And you can, you know. Uh, this is a cute triangulation. Nina doesn't come straight to Butch and say, I like you. Uh, she, she gets her friend to come to, she gets her friend to come to Butch to say, Nina likes you. So then it went from innocent and cute instantly to not so innocent and cute. Because Butch said to the friend, well, uh, tell Nina that I don't like her at all. <laughs> and so this other girl ran right back to Nina and told her, and Nina started to cry. Now, we laugh about it right now. And, and Butch laughed. I think I laughed, too. And that's, I, I'm ashamed of it. So, Nina, if you're listening to this, I'm very sorry that I laughed that day, and I'm sorry that Butch did that to you. It can get messed up pretty quickly, though. It, 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 it's not always cute. In sixth grade, it's cute half the time. The other half the time, it's not cute at all. And when you're older, you put away childish things. You don't do it anymore. I remember at a former church, um, I was in a room with two people, and one of them made a comment about another person's child. And as a parent, if you're a parent, you know that that is like uh, war. You know, you just don't do that, right? So maybe that was a mistake. But the person who was offended came straight to me and said, would you tell them that I didn't like that? And um, my, I was like, you're in the same room as, you know, we're in all in the same room here. They, can, they could certainly, you could walk right up to them. It's not that hard to do. And um, I could just imagine, you know, I could say, walk over to that person and say, they didn't like what you said. And then they say, well, what is it that I said that they didn't like? Oh, well, that's it. Well, it was what you said about my kid. Okay, well, it was what you said about, can you imagine me going shuttling back and forth all day long? And, well, what did you think it meant? Well, this is what I felt and heard. That's ridiculous. I don't have time for that, and I won't do it. And so I said, you know, you, if you have something to say to that person, you have to say it right to them. You have to say it directly. You have to communicate directly with them. You don't need me in the middle. In fact, putting me in the middle will actually communicate something that you don't want to communicate, unless you do want to communicate it, which is that you don't want to talk directly to them, and that's offensive itself. It's offensive for somebody to come to you and say, somebody didn't want to talk to you directly, so I'm, doing, I'm going to do it for them. It feels dismissive. It feels like there's no respect there. It's difficult. So I said, yep, either you, and if you can't have that conversation, then you can't have that conversation, but I won't be in the middle of it. Um, and I wasn't, so that was good. So um, this is kind of a discipline, though, and this is interesting. It's, just, it's like a skill that can be learned or unlearned, I guess. My sister-in-law is a college professor, 
and she teaches math, which is a tough subject. And every year she tells her students well in advance when the finals will be. But nonetheless, the week before finals, she says, you know, finals will be at Tuesday from 1 to 5. And uh, some of the students then go, oh, well, I have a final that morning in my other class. It's going to be impossible for me to take two finals at the same time. And so they'll go and tell their friends right next to them in the desk. They'll call their parents up and say, this is so unfair. They'll talk to some of their other professors and say, Martha, my sister-in-law, Dr. Nelson, I guess. Dr. Nelson is being so unfair to me. They'll talk to all these people, but they don't talk to my sister-in-law, which is really funny. They don't go straight there. And then my sister-in-law, Martha, uh, she just told me about this when I was home visiting my mother. She says, I, I just have the simple thing that I say to them. You can talk to your friends all you want. There's no problem with that. You can call your parents up. No problem. You have total freedom to do that. You're free to talk to other professors about anything that you experience in my classes. I welcome that. But if you want to take the test at a different time, your friends can't make that happen for you. Your parents can't make that happen for you. Other professors cannot make that happen for you. The only person that can make that happen for you is me. And you have to come to me to ask me to do that. It's just simple, right? And we're all kind of laughing about it, and it is so simple. But what's funny, and this is the nugget I think that's important, is she says almost all the time the students go, I knew that. I knew that. So why did I go and do? Why did I go all these other indirect ways before going the direct way? They knew it. They're, they're not sixth graders anymore. They're college students. They knew who the right person to talk to was. There's something in our nature that either fears these direct conversations or doesn't want to have them because we know we might not like the outcome of them. I don't exactly know why. I think that when we're fallen, every part of us gets fallen, including the way we communicate with each other. And we don't communicate well when we're not communicating directly. And I think that's a sign of our fallenness and our brokenness. You know, um, Jesus knows this too. He knows this is in our nature. That's why he's always encouraging direct communication. He models direct communication. He doesn't take part in triangulation or indirect communication. Um, this is something that takes a little courage because evidently our nature is predisposed not to do it. It's hard to do. It takes a little bit of discipline. It probably takes practice. If we want practical advice from the scriptures, this is it. Something that's actually pretty hard to do. Something that takes practice. Something that takes discipline. You know, I'm really impressed by people out in the world, and there's only a few of them. Think about these people. The people who go and defuse bombs. What a great job. That takes some courage, doesn't it? Or craziness, right? People going out defusing bombs and landmines. There are people who jump out of airplanes into wildfires to help put them out, okay? I'm neither of those people. I'm not interested in that line of work, right? They are very brave people. Incredible amount of courage. Can you imagine that it's possible that a person like that, after they got back from jumping out of a plane into a fire and they're sitting back at the fire station, could still be so afraid of walking across the room and having a conversation directly with somebody they have a problem with. I can actually very easily imagine that. It takes courage. 
It takes practice to do something like this. Well, the practical side of this is that um, we have a commitment to communicate directly with each other. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced that of all the things that could hold us back from doing what the Spirit is guiding us to do, not communicating directly with each other is one of the biggest things that could hold us back. I'm pretty sure of that. I'm pretty convinced of that. I think that's really, this is one of the most important things that we have on this list. Um, if we can't communicate with each other directly, then our enemy is winning because he's got us doing the more difficult way of communicating, the way that actually hurts more in, in, the, in the way that destroys relationships instead of the way that builds relationships. Um, but if we do what's more difficult, what takes some courage, some maturity, then we're going to have these deeper relationships on the other side. It will develop the trust that we need to move forward and we'll be more equipped to do what God is asking us to do in this world. And I think we should pray for that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the witness of your son, Jesus Christ, for his practical words to us on how to love each other in the way that we communicate. Father, help us to deal with each other directly. Help us to deepen our discipleship. Help us to find those friction points and work through them to deeper relationship. And we know that you can do this in us by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.